My father always told me soccer is a poor man's sport. You know, you can't be a rich kid or have a rich kid mentality and excel. You got to be a poor man on the field that's hungry to eat. Welcome to Coffee and Football. My name is Sebastian Alvarado, and I'm the host of this long-form interview-style podcast where each week I sit down with some of the most interesting and influential people involved in the game. They range from players to club and league executives to corporate brand directors to media profiles, agents, and thought leaders. I've always been intrigued by the -the behind-the-scenes types of stories and curious in learning about people's journeys and wanting to understand how they got to where they are. The purpose of these conversations is to dig deep and get to know the person behind the title and to learn about their work, everyday routines, life experiences, and to hear their side of the story. On that note, it's time for the very first episode. I had the opportunity to sit down with Aleko Eskandarian, the assistant coach of the New York Cosmos. He's a former MLS professional, having played for five different clubs, as well as representing the U.S. national team. His name was actually one of the first ones I wrote down when thinking about who to approach for this series. Not only for his career accomplishments in the professional game, but also to learn about his journey as one of the biggest talents in the early days of the league, his Armenian background and influences, and perhaps even more so for the adversity he's faced and gone through. I wanted to learn about that other side of being a professional athlete when things aren't always going as planned. Aleko is a great example of somebody who hasn't always had an easy route, and uh, he's very open about it. He has an amazing ability to tell this story. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome, Aleko, to the Coffee and uh, Football Podcast. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. How are you doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. Lovely day in New York City, so I can't complain. Since the theme of this really is a coffee conversation, my first question has to be, do you drink coffee? <laughs> you're going to be surprised on my answer. God damn it. You're, you're really missing out. So, so you never had a cup of coffee? Never in my life. Why? Never in my life. You know, as a kid, I was like the most hyper energetic kid. I was like running around, bouncing off walls and I just remember everyone saying like, man, this kid's never going to need a cup, cup of coffee in his life. And uh, as I grew older, I saw like my dad, my brother, they can't go a day without drinking a cup of coffee. And they're like, oh, I, get, I have a headache if I don't drink my coffee. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to steer steer clear of this. I'm, I got a couple of weird things. I've never had bacon in my life. I've never had peanut butter in my life. Today, you're the assistant coach at the New York Cosmos. Is there any additional pressure because you are the New York Cosmos and because you're in New York City? Or absolutely, absolutely. You know that's that's part of being on the New York Cosmos. You have to be someone who embraces pressure, um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, to me, that's the whole reason I'm even coaching right now is because I, I love pressure and I enjoy the pressure of playing. And there's no way to replicate that in life after you're done. Um, but this is the, the next best thing of, of, uh, still feeling that pressure day to day and, uh, you know, having that competitive spirit and, and wanting to achieve your goal. So what do your mornings typically look like? Your, take me through your first 90 minutes. You know, for me, I, it's just kind of like a gloomy story, but, uh, because of, uh, my concussions that I, uh, that I, that forced me to retire, I actually struggle with, with sleep. 
Um, so I typically, as soon as any sort of light peers through my window or whatever it is, I'm up. So usually that's 5.30, 6 a.m. Um, I'll try to get to the gym <clears throat> as much as I can, but usually I'll procrastinate on my phone, check my emails, do a lot of, I guess, work-related stuff just with, uh, you know, returning phone calls or not phone calls that early, but texts and things like that. I can't tell you how many people have texted me back. I'm like, why are you responding to me at five, <laughs> five thirty AM? I'm like, cause that's, that's when I wake up. That's when I do this stuff. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, usually I'll just, uh, get all that stuff out of the way and then, and then focus on, you know, whatever, whatever the work is that day. So Gio is actually another guy who's up pretty early. So usually I'll, I'll correspond with him. We actually have a fun little game to see who's going to be up earlier on, on the day. But, uh, um, yeah, just seeing what the day calls for. And the cool thing is every day is different. I want to get back to in, in just a little bit in, in terms of where you are today with your with your coaching and, and where you're headed with that. But I want to rewind the tape a little bit and, and start from the beginning. Okay. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Montvale, New Jersey. In order to uh, to get to know you, what do I need to know about that place? Well, if you want to know me, it starts you know way before that, which is my roots, which uh, I'm Armenian, uh, Persian Armenian. Both my my parents. Uh, we're born in Iran, but we're of Armenian descent. And, uh, you know, my, my family came over to, to the United States through soccer. My father played for the, the old New York Cosmos. Um, and that's what brought my family over. Um, and they settled in, in Jersey. I have an older brother as well. So we're very much a, a soccer family. So I just grew up around the game. You know, my earliest memories as a child is me in Giant Stadium in the locker room, juggling a ball with Carlos Alberto and Beckenbauer and, all these legends, Kinalia guys who as a three-year-old, four-year-old, I thought they were just my friends um, that I got to kick the ball around with. And uh, yeah, I just, I grew up with the game. You know, I don't think you could find a, a photo of me as a toddler without a, a ball in my hands. Yeah. And I, and I assume that your uh, dad obviously was, uh, or is, has always been a huge influence for you. What, what are some of the main kind of learnings that, that you take from him that you learned back then that you, that you apply today? Yeah, my father is uh, definitely, you know, everything, you know, I could ask for in terms of a role model and someone that uh, has taught me everything I know about the game and, and life. Um, more than anything soccer related, my dad uh, is just a phenomenal person. So that that's always kind of what stuck with me. You know, whenever people talk about, you know, filling my dad's shoes and and uh, living up to, you know, to the family name and, you know, and whatnot. For me, it's more about how my dad carries himself on a daily basis. You know, he's a, a World Cup veteran, one of the greatest players in, in uh, his country's national team. And, uh, with the Cosmos, one of the most, you know, did he play with players. Armenia or with Iran? With Iran. Yeah. Which is a feat in itself. Um, and that goes way back. Um, I, I don't, I don't need to look through the stats, but I think, I think he might have been one of the first, uh, Christian players to play for Iran. Um, and especially at that time, it was a sensitive, subject so he had to deal with a lot of different things as well that uh you know are foreign to me that i would never comprehend but uh you know my dad has a has an incredible story and the way he kind of persevered and excelled and the the stories that that i've heard about him and that he's told are, are phenomenal so uh my dad is an inspiration every day you know just like i said seeing how he has remained humble and genuine um throughout any successes or failures or whatever it is it has been most inspirational do you speak uh, Armenian? Yeah, my first language is Armenian. That's that's what we spoke at home. Um, you know, my parents didn't speak English when they when they moved here. 
So uh, I spoke Armenian at home and uh, went to an Armenian school actually growing up. So Armenian is very much embedded in in, uh, in my being and my culture, and it's a big part of who we are. On that note, and a lot of the Armenians that I've come across in Iranian, I, I grew up with a, with a lot of uh, people from from that region. Um, but even uh, here in the states, a lot of them are very prominent in their fields and whatever they are, and they and they have a certain certain character. But there is, a, I think, what you just touched on. There's a humbleness, but then there's a certain drive that it's quite unique. Is there any way that you can sort of explain, like, where does that come from? Are there certain things that they teach you or or, or feed you, or, or, or <laughs> where does that come from? Because there's a lot of successful ones. It's all in the shish kebab, man. That's, that's where it all comes from. No, it's uh, it's tough to really explain. You know, it's I have to say it's in uh, it's in our blood. You know, I know obviously with our history. You know, if you date all the way back to the genocide and all the different things that uh, our people have had to deal with, there's there's a huge sense of pride that you know we there's there's not the that many of us in the world we're not the most populated uh, race I guess in in the world, but um, you know I, I think William Saroyan, who's who's a phenomenal Armenian author and poet, he said it best. You know, anywhere that two Armenians can meet each other, they'll start a new Armenia. Uh, because it's it's that bond between you know all Armenians that you know you have to work for everything you get, um, but still remain humble. You know it's a it's a beautiful thing. Our culture is is phenomenal. Every Armenian person I've met, even throughout my career, is, I can't tell you how many times. Maybe in every stadium I've been to, uh, people that don't even know me, uh, you know, I'll see an Armenian flag in the corner of the stadium, and someone calling me over, and you go and like, oh, I know so and so that knows so and so, and it's like your family. So. For me, it's been an honor to, uh, you know, represent my culture with every time I step on the field or every time I, you know, find any success as a coach or anything. I'm happy to talk about it and also educate people about it because there's way too many people that don't know the Armenian story, especially, you know, going back to the genocide and the struggles of, of getting that, uh, commemorated on a, on an international basis. It's, uh, it's tough when government and politics get involved. It's a very sensitive subject, but um, I think all Armenians live with that, um, and and we kind of choose to uh, allow our drive and our success to to kind of speak for ourselves. I probably don't even need to ask you what what your dreams were growing up, because I think you were <laughs> you were just put, put put a ball next to you and told that this is what you're gonna do and be right. Yeah, no, I think it, it was never forced upon me at all. That's the funny thing; it was a misconception when I was younger. Of people thought, ah, you know, you had no choice. You know, right. your parents forced you, but it was. It was the opposite. I was just obsessed with the game. I think it helped that an older brother as well who was kicking the ball around. Um, so I kind of mimicked him and always competed with him. But, you know, my parents, they were open to whatever. You know, they would they would take the ball away from me as punishment. You know, if I wasn't listening or if I was being a bad kid, they would say, okay, no soccer practice this week. And I would cry and lose my mind. So, you know, by no means was it ever forced on me. My mom could probably tell you some great stories about, you know, middle of the night, no one could find me and uh, I'm out in the park or whatever playing on my own just with a ball dribbling and trying to do different things. My parents, you know, worried sick thinking I, you know, disappeared. But um, I was always obsessed, you know, um, soccer for me as a kid, as much as, you know, I love the game and it was fun. It was an outlet uh, for me to express myself. Uh, like I said it before, I had so much energy growing up. I was always kind of running around, bouncing, bouncing around here and there. I got in a lot of trouble as well. And uh, because of it, so soccer for me was a great outlet to kind of uh, express myself, have that 
creativity and, and individuality and also know some there, there was something there that I could work hard at and, and show improvement with. And it was a, it was a fun game in my own head to play with. So then you, in high school, you went to Bergen Catholic High School in, in New Jersey, right? Yes. And uh, ended up, uh, I guess, breaking all the possible records uh, there were. And from there on, you moved to uh, the University of Virginia. Yes. Um, just talk uh, talk me through that that process, kind of from high school and then how you ended up at the uh, at the college level. Yeah. Listen, I always had a chip on my shoulder. You know, even when I was a kid, competing with my brother with you know older players so uh, i remember when i was in sixth grade i was the ball boy for my brother's high school team sixth seventh and eighth grade and uh i would go watch these high school games and i'd just be juggling the ball while watching the game the whole time i'd be thinking you know i, I think i could be out there with these guys and you know thinking what i would do instead of what this guy did and i'm just kind of studying and and uh sizing up you know the level and the competition and all that stuff so um, I couldn't wait to get out there. And, uh, my freshman year at high school, it was, uh, a bit interesting because they, my school had a rule of no freshman could play a varsity sport because we had a very good athletics at, at my high school, especially the football and basketball team and all that. And so they kind of made this rule of, you know, freshmen can't play varsity sports. And, uh, it, it like ate at me, man. So, um, I was playing with the freshman team for a couple of weeks. And then I would go and I'd watch my brother. My brother was the captain of the varsity team. So then I would just go and sit there and just watch. And sure enough, one day early in the season, I think someone got injured and they needed someone else to jump in. So I jumped in, I think, you know, scored four or five goals in, in the game. And the coach said, okay, I think we're going to have to change this rule. So that's kind of how my high school career began. And then breaking in on that point. And then the next thing was, to to start winning with our team so first it kind of started with my individual success of proving that i belonged at that level because my high school wasn't known for our soccer team at all and uh you know just having those local rivalries and things like that trying to gain bragging rights for our school and i individually did very well but uh my school never really got the recognition it deserved and even with me people were like oh he's a good player but he plays for a, you know a shitty team so you know, how good can you really be? What's the competition like? So my senior year became a, a huge challenge to say, okay, I know I'm the best player in, in this area. I know my team is not the greatest. How can I now be a leader? How can I um, help my get the best out of my teammates and, and be a winner? And so my senior year was, was a uh, phenomenal man. Our whole, our whole group of, of, uh, of athletes, uh, of soccer players, they, they uh, really put the work in, committed to it. It was such a fun team to be part of. To we won a you know state championship and county championship and all this stuff, which uh, we we definitely were not the best soccer team by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, it was fun to for the first time in my life feel like a, a leader, um, and I felt more satisfaction with that than anything that I'd accomplished individually. And then uh, you ended up at uh, Virginia. Virginia, that was interesting too because you know for all my. Um, feats in, in New Jersey, I was really only recruited heavily by the local schools, you know, the Rutgers, St. John's, UConn, all those schools were the ones offering me full scholarships and things like that. But, um, I was kind of a late bloomer on the international scene, uh, with the, with the national team. Mm -hmm. Um, so it wasn't until my senior high school that I finally got called into the under 17 national team. And, uh, when I did, Right away, I did well. Before that, I was kind of an unknown commodity. And I, 
I kind of had self-doubt as well. You know, when I was 15, 16, I always looked at, you know, we had ODP back then. So like state team, regional team players, national team players. I was like, oh man, those guys are, you know, it's completely def- different level. And uh, I remember my father telling me like, listen, you can compete with those guys. You can be better than those guys. But I didn't believe it myself. And so it took me a while to mentally get to that point where I, I believed that I was better than those guys and that I, I belonged. So finally, my senior year of high school, I kind of went on a tear um, and, and uh, did very well. But it was a bit late in the game in terms of college recruitment and things like that. So all the big schools, I wasn't really on the radar. Um, but I had this dream of, of going to UVA, you know, growing up with the Bruce Arena teams and, you know, the Ben Olsons and John Harks and Tony Miola, all those guys from Jersey that, uh, had gone there and, and, uh, found success. That was, a, those are the teams that I grew up watching. So I got very fortunate in that the assistant coach for UVA coached a regional team, an ODP regional team for a, an age group older than me. They needed some players and I got called in. We went to an international trip to Germany, uh, competed in an international tournament against uh, a lot of Bundesliga youth teams. And uh, did very well. And then the assistant said, uh, listen, have you decided where you're going to school yet? I said, no. And he said, uh, I'm going to talk to the coach and see if we can get you, get you to UVA. So uh, they actually gave me probably the least uh, scholarship uh, offer I had from all the schools that were recruiting me. But uh, I spoke to my parents. It was actually between UVA and Princeton. Those are my, my right. final two choices. And uh, looking back, I could have gone two, two completely different paths. But... I told my parents, I said, listen, I just want one semester at UVA. I want to go there. I want to see where I measure up against the best uh, soccer players in the country. And you had the grades to, to get I had in? the grades. Yeah, school was always important. That's Like I told you, my parents, as much as you know, soccer was a, a big part of our lives, school was always priority, always. You know, I couldn't do – if I wasn't doing well in school, I wouldn't be allowed to go train. You know, that was kind of the rule in the house. Uh, my parents put a huge, huge emphasis on, on education and – uh, you know, I got my ass kicked a few times by, uh, by my dad if I, you know, wasn't doing the right things, uh, in terms of schoolwork. So yeah, I was very fortunate that grades were, were not a problem for me. Who else was on, on, on your team from the ones who, who made it up? Yeah. The guys that made it, uh, there was Kyle Martino, uh, who's obviously now doing TV stuff, playing the league. Ryan Kelly played a bit, uh, as a pro. Who else we have? Marshall Leonard played in MLS. Kenny Arena, who's Bruce Arena's son, who also played a bit in MLS and is now coaching in MLS. We literally had a, a roster of professionals. You know, when I look back at our starting team, I think every guy uh, played professionally or at some point was involved in a professional team. So it was it's different than in those days. You know, it was kind of unique for a player to be able to go pro at a young age. So college was very much the strongest players in that age group. Um, and at UVA, it was, you know, it was like a professional team with the facilities that we had, the coaching we had, the players we had. It was a fantastic environment for us. And all of that then le- led you to, uh, to finally become, uh, a true professional. Uh, you were, uh, drafted as the, uh, as the number one pick in the country. Talk me through that. I've been in, I've been in this country for many years. I still don't understand how that whole process works. Um, yeah. Talk me through that. I know you ended up at DC United and, uh, You know, what was that process like and what was it like to be drafted by DC United? Did you even care about what team you would end up on or? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Obviously, it's, uh, a unique setup. I mean, it's, it's nerve wracking for sure. You never know where you're going to end up, but 
Um, once I decided, you know, I wanted to start my career in MLS, um, I wanted to play in front of my parents where my family could come watch me play and um, also help the game grow in this country. Obviously, it was a, a new league and it was still very much uh, developing. But I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And by entering the draft, it's funny because I used to go to DC United games because UVA was about an hour and a half, two hours away. So whenever some of my buddies that were with me on the Olympic team or on the national team would play against DC, sometimes we'd make the trip and go watch and uh, try to support you know our, my, my teammates and things like that. And I remember watching DC play and that year they were the worst team in MLS. And I remember thinking like, man, this team needs a lot of help. So I, I, you know, didn't know how it was going to work, whether they're going to get the first pick or not. And obviously they, they did. And New York, the Metro Stars, which was my hometown team, had the second pick. So leading up to the draft, I was actually in Portugal with the Olympic team for a tournament. And all of a sudden I got the phone call while I was in Portugal that U.S. soccer needed me to fly down to Kansas City to be part of the draft because it looked like I was going to be the number one pick. So... Flew down on my own uh, on a whim, literally uh, like an 18-hour trip because there were last-minute flight and delays and layovers and all this stuff. Finally got there a few hours before the um, the draft and, you know, was there with my agent and just started hearing all the rumors of, oh, you might get traded. And I think they, you know, the Red Bulls were talking about trading to get you and kind of bring you home and then this and then this and then. I didn't know until until I was, you know, sitting there and waiting for them to call my name. And finally, they said, DC United with the first pick, you know, select Seleko Eskandarian. And it was a dream come true. I, I went up there. Ray Hudson was the coach at the time. Uh, it was quite a character. And, um, yeah, it started my career. And as soon as DC called my name, you know, I, I knew I knew that they, were, they had been given a lot of offers, um, good offers. I remember my agent telling me that the New York offered Clint Mathis for the number one pick. And I remember thinking like, man, Clint Mathis is one of my favorite players. Like that's crazy that they would even offer him for, for me. That's, you know, I think I would take that deal. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Clint, Clint was uh, one of the guys I really looked up to when I was in high school. I used to train with the Metro stars and Clint was there. And, and, uh, and to this day, he's one of my favorite guys and a phenomenal player. So hearing that, hearing that they were offering, him and and that DC turned it down and different things. I was like, you know what, man, these guys want me. I'm gonna give them everything I have. So the moment they they selected me, I said, all right, you know, New York is now you know in, in the rearview mirror, and and I live in DC now, and I represent DC, and I'm gonna give DC everything I have. It is indeed an international friendly between DC United and Real Madrid. Now Gomez, Moreno touches on Escudero. Can you describe, I mean, this is a little more than 10 years ago. Can you describe what the MLS looked like back then and, and what soccer in general in this country compared to where we are today? Yeah, well, first of all, I think there was 10 teams. I think that was it, 10 teams. And, uh, you know, two conferences of, of, of five teams. So four out of five make the playoffs. And it was, it was crazy. But uh, the level... I'd argue was a bit higher because with less teams, there was so much more competition for spots. Now with 20 teams and NASL teams and USL teams, there's all kinds of opportunities for every player to grow and develop and get their opportunity. With MLS, it was like, if you're not 
you know, the creme de la creme, you're not even going to get a look. So it was the top guys, you know, international guys, guys who were starters for their national team who'd be on the bench or would be cut. So it was very cutthroat. Um, and it was great. The competition was, was phenomenal. With that said, the stadiums and fans and things like that, that was still uh, very much a, a work in progress. Uh, the game was still in a development phase growing. But, um, you know, I, our team was, uh, was fantastic. You know, I, I was lucky enough that my rookie year, my rookie year, I also could do a, a TV show about because first of all, having Ray Hudson as a, as a coach, John Trask as our assistant coach, these guys were, you know, cartoon characters. And, uh, our team was such an interesting mix of veteran guys and, and young guys. So we had veteran guys like, you know, Marco Echeverry and Christo Stoichkov, who's a, who's a legend. He was actually a player coach for that team, which was uh, a show in itself. He's oh, quite a character, huh? Oh my gosh. Christo, I could write a book about. Um, <laughs> All right. So uh, <laughs> g- give me a couple of anecdotes. I want to hear <laughs> something about Ray Hudson and, and then definitely something about, about Risa Stoichko as well. Well, well, Ray Ray was, uh, you know, uh, a huge character in terms of how he, his pregame speeches, man. His pregame speeches were, were unbelievable. What, what were those be like? they would just go off on a tangent to the point that he would get foam around his mouth and then just like spit on the floor in the middle of of the uh, speech. But he would just like get you so pumped up. Um, Just, I don't even know if half the stuff he was saying was true of like, they, they, they don't believe in you. They're they're all doubting you. No one thinks you can do it. Like just going on and on and on and just, uh, you know, pumping us up. Uh, I remember being like, I'm feeling like it's a world cup final and it's like the third game of the season. But, uh, he had one of the best quotes in the history of soccer, uh, that year, which, um, you know, we weren't scoring many goals. We weren't, uh, playing that well. And, and someone asked him, uh, you know, what's, you know, what's going on with your offense? It's not working. There seems to be, you know, no penetration, no runs. And he said his exact quote, which you should go look it up. He said, without penetration, it's masturbation. So I guess you could say right now we're just playing with ourselves. <laughs> And I was like, man, this guy's going to be a phenomenal commentator one day. <laughs> but, you know, I, it, it wasn't all great too because we struggled. I wasn't getting much playing time. I was actually very, very frustrated individually. And I remember meeting with Ray and just, uh, at one point I, I was like, man, he must have something against me. He, you know, didn't take all these offers, kept me with the number one pick and then he doesn't, he doesn't want to play me. And he just had a, a philosophy where he liked to stick with veteran players and just thought those guys were more equipped. Uh, to play and help get results. And it wasn't until about halfway through the season when I, I finally was like, all right, I got to go talk to him because I, I pride myself on never, I never spoke to coaches. For me, it was, I put my work on the field. My play will do the talking. If you feel like it's not good enough, I'll work harder the next week. I kept doing that. It wasn't paying off for me. Finally, I said, look, I, I'd like to talk to you. And also I, I wanted to play because we had Olympic qualifying coming up. So I told him, I said, look, uh, what, what do I have to do to, to play more? And uh, he's like, let me ask you a question. How, how old are you? And I was like, I'm, uh, I think I was 19 or I just turned 20. Uh, I said, I'm 20 years old. And he's like, you're, you're so young. You have, you know, your whole career ahead of you. You're, you know, you're doing great. You're doing fantastic. And I'm like, man, I, you know, you're telling me I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. But I'm playing, you know, the last five minutes of games. Like, I, I need, I need more. And he's just like, your time will come. Your time will come. Be patient. But, uh. It was frustrating for me because I, I felt like I could offer more and I was ready to kind of make a splash. And then 
you know, when you, when you see the press clippings of, uh, oh, the number one pick bust because he's not playing any minutes and this and that, it was frustrating for me to not be able to show the fans, to show the country what I could do. Um, and everyone just assumed that I wasn't good enough. And, and again, my, my crazy voice in my head and my chip in my shoulder kicked in. And so the next year at following that season, Ray got fired and Peter Novak took over and, and, uh, that changed my career because he gave me a, a fresh start. And so uh, I put the work into, to gain my spot and, and never looked back. Christo, on the other hand, which uh, I promised a Christo anecdote, he was, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think Christo would be arrested in today's world if he was still a professional athlete because, uh, that guy, um, is larger than life in many ways. His personality, his talent, everything about him, um, his, um, you know, culturally, you know, coming from Bulgaria, the life that that guy has, has lived is not the normal life. But I'll tell you one quick story, which I tell people and, and people don't believe me. But we were in preseason in Florida. And I think, it, I think it took him a few months to even learn my name. He used to just call me stupid. Hey, stupid. Come here, stupid. That's what he said. Cause I had to shine his shoes too. But I think deep down he, re- he really liked me as well. Cause we don't, he'd always take me to lunch every single day. And so we're in preseason. He's like, Hey, do you want ice cream? I'm like, yeah, I love ice cream. He goes, okay, we go get ice cream. You come to my room. We go to ice cream after, after the practice. I'm like, okay, great. He's like, who's your roommate? I'm like, uh, Doug Warren. He's like, okay, bring Doug too. So we go and I'm thinking we're going to drive around the corner to get an ice cream or something like that. We drive like an hour to a different place. I guess he owned a house somewhere in Florida. And I'm like, what the hell did I get myself into? So we go there. We get some ice cream. Um, we come back and he's like, Hey, ice cream. Good. I'm like, yeah, it's like the best ice cream. I'm like, yeah, it was very good. We get to the car and he's got a ticket on his, on his windshield. And we, and he's like, what is this? What is this bullshit? And I'm like, I can curse, right? Is that okay? Okay. So he's like, what is this? What is this? And I'm like, uh, I'm like, Christo, you parked in a loading zone, man. Like it's, it's illegal. And he's like, no, 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 no. This, this is wrong. This is wrong. We cannot do this. I'm like, what's this guy talking about? What do you mean this is wrong? You parked in a loading zone, you got a ticket. What are you, you going to do? This guy starts driving around looking for the police officer who gave him a ticket. He finally catches up with this guy who's who's now a few blocks away writing tickets somewhere else. He's kind of yelling at him, motioning him to come over. And the guy, the officer comes over and he's like, yeah, can I help you? And he's like, yeah, what is this? Shows him the ticket. The guy looks at him and goes, yeah, you were, you were parked in a loading zone. So I give you a parking ticket. And he goes, no, 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 you can't give me a ticket. And the guy's like, what do you mean I can't give you a ticket? And he goes, you cannot give ticket to another cop. And I'm sitting there in the backseat like, what is he talking about? Like, we're going to jail. What's what's happening? And the guy's like, you're a cop? And he's like, yeah, I'm a cop. And he's like, okay, well, where's your badge? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Christo pulls out a badge and he goes, FBI, Bulgaria. <laughs> and I was just like, I remember sitting in the backseat of the car next to Doug Warren and Santino Quaranta. And we're just like, dude, he's in the FBI. Like, what is, what is going on? What, what is happening? And so the police officer was so confused. Like, what language is, I don't even understand this. And eventually, you know, we, we left and, uh, you know, we all like stayed silent for like five, 10 minutes. Like, dude, how do we even talk to this guy about what just occurred? And found like, did he uh, get away with it though? 
Uh, I don't know. He ripped the ticket. <laughs> he just ripped it. I'm sure he never paid it. But uh, we're like, hey, Risto, uh, are you? Where'd you get that badge, man? And he's like, oh, the uh, the president of uh, Bulgaria awarded me like an Interpol Interpol badge after he was World Player of the Year in 1990 or something, 1994 or something like that. And I'm just like, dude, <laughs> you are a character, man. So I, needless to say, I never went for ice cream uh, with Christo again, but that, that's just one snippet of, a, of our Christo Stoichkov story. Peter Novak comes in, yep. you, you start playing, and this is in 2004? 2004, yep. And you guys end up winning the MLS Cup. We win basically the same roster as the year before. Um, what changed? The coach. Leadership, man. Um, you know, with all due respect to, to Ray, uh, when Peter came in, he was like, listen, I don't care what you've done, who you are, what teams you've played for, national team or not national team, college rookie or veteran, I don't care. You have to show me that you belong on the field. And hearing that on the first day, I was like a dream come true. I'm like, thank you, because I, I know I'll outwork anyone uh, that I that I compete with. So... To not have my age held against me or lack of experience or whatever was a, a blessing. Um, also that year, we re-signed Jaime Moreno. Jaime was a DC United legend who had gone away uh, to New York to the Metro Stars, had injuries, thought he could never play again, had a spinal surgery, which is very risky. So he came back and he was like 60% at first. But um, I remember even those in preseason, I was like, man, this guy is such a smart player. and has so many tools and me with my mentality, I, I enjoyed working hard. I enjoyed doing the dirty work up top. And so I remember even in preseason thinking, man, I want to play with this guy because he makes the game easier for me and I'll run for him defensively. He doesn't, you know, let him save his legs or whatever. As long as, you know, we were very good compliments to each other. And uh, we just developed this bond that worked out in the entire season. You know, I, I think we were unstoppable, man. I can't think of a single game where I thought defenders got the best of us because we were both so different and we worked so well together that it, it was really tough for any defense to to match up with us because if you dropped your line and and you know were you know afraid of my speed then Jaime would find those pockets and turn and run at guys or if you try to play a high line Jaime was so good at keeping the ball turning and slipping through balls into me and we just had a, a great team great group of uh a mix of you know veteran guys, mid-level uh, veterans, and and young guys. We also had our captain was Ryan Nelson. Uh, we had Ernie Stewart, who was an incredible you know national team player. We had uh, who am I missing? That was also phenomenal. Ben Olson was there. Nick Romando was in goal. Uh, we had Mike Petke in the back. Brian Namoff in the back. Who else did we have? We I mean we had Dima Kovalenko, who's another one of my uh, favorite players, you know, that I ever played with. And Freddie Adu was a rookie that year with us as That's well. That's right. Yeah. So we, we just had a, an amazing group. We all stuck together with everything that we did. You know, when, you know, most teams, when you go out, you got four or five guys that are kind of in a click. This team, if we're going to go out, you know, for dinner, for beers, it'd be, you know, 16, 17 guys that would roll together. We, we were very much brothers uh, on and off the field. With all of the the success in in two thousand and four, and and you being such a prominent player in that team, uh, where was the national team in in relation to all of this? Yeah, so 
2004, we, I was still with the Olympic team mm-hmm. and, uh, we went to Olympic qualifying. Olympics were in Athens, Greece, uh, that year. And, uh, crazy, man, still stings me to talk about, but 2004, um, before the season started, we go to Olympic qualifying. Olympic qualifying was in Mexico that year. So the two strongest teams in CONCACAF are Mexico and the United States. We were in two different groups. And the way it worked was, uh, first place in group A would play second place in group B. First place in group B would play second place in group A. Whoever won that semifinal matchup, those two teams would go to the Olympics. So of course we were favored to win group A and Mexico was favored to win group B and we wouldn't face each other in the semis we play, you know, maybe Costa Rica or whoever it was. Sure enough, and Mexico hosting it. Um, no one expect them to lose, you know, any of their first round games. Sure enough, they lose, I believe, to Costa Rica in their last game. We win. So now Mexico finishes second in their group. We finish first. So we end up playing Mexico in the semifinals. Winner goes to the Olympics in Athens. Loser is out. It was one of the most surreal experiences of my life. Uh, I think there were 65,000 in Mexico City where we played, packed fans. And this is after 9-11. So... 65,000 people chanting Osama bin Laden's name, um, cheering against the U.S. Yeah, it was, I've never felt, uh, so, you know, angry while in a match, while being on a bench. You know, there's gamesmanship and yelling stuff and, you know, you have thick skin for that. But when you start, you know, putting a a terrorist, uh, yeah, it it was, you know, I've never, felt emotions like that during game and literally looking at, you know, a man, you know, with his child, you know, yelling Osama and, you know, celebrating the fact that, you know, uh, thousands of Americans had, had, uh, been killed in a, in a terrorist attack. And, and I felt, uh, disgusted, you know, I think it crossed the line a little bit. And to be honest with you, I think it had an effect on, on all of us because, uh, we got our asses kicked in that, in that knockout game. We lost, uh, four nil. I think it was 3-0 at halftime. In addition to that, the day before the game, my best friend's sister passed away. And uh, the assistant coach was actually my best friend's stepfather, which is Thomas Rongen. So Thomas Rongen's stepdaughter, who was, uh, and his stepson went to UVA with me. So I became quite close with uh, his sister, and uh, she she passed in a tragic car accident. So I was a wreck. Um, and I think I was, I was leading scorer of the Olympic tournament that year, um, but I didn't start in that game against Mexico. I came in the second half and the score was already 4-0. And it was just a helpless feeling uh, where right off the bat, they jumped on us, the crowd. You know, you could tell some of our guys were, were shook and rattled a little bit and just a terrible performance. And so we did not go to the Olympics that year, which uh, still haunts me to this day. So then after that, after, you know, my performances during the year, the full national team started calling me. Bruce Serena was the coach. And it was crazy because I got called in for a couple uh World Cup qualifying matches, but they were during the MLS season and my team did not release me because they were, some of them were friendly. Some of them were not, uh, difficult opponents. And we were, you know, in a playoff run and then in the playoffs. So I, I missed a couple of training camps after the season. I got called in and sure enough, when I went to camp, um, I ended up like tearing my groin. And so didn't get to play in the next few games, was out for, you know, a month or so. Then preseason started, and then I got a concussion, um, and I was out for a year. So that was in two thousand and five. Two thousand five, yeah. And that was how did that uh, happen? Um, so the one thing with my concussions, I, I really don't 
like talking about it. It seems more and more that I have to talk about it. You know, it's not so much about me. It's, you know, obviously to help uh, other people raise awareness for it and all that stuff. But 2005. Have you been, you've been quite involved in that? No. Uh, yes and no. Uh, privately, yes. In public, no. Um, because, you know, and I'll always be an advocate for, for, um, anything I could do to help, but, uh, for my own mental health, it's, uh, it's sometimes difficult for me to, to talk about, you know, the things I had to go through. And, you know, I went through a very dark period, um, after I was forced to stop playing. That was, you know, very challenging, um, for me in my life. But yeah, in, in 2005, just went for a ball over the top, me and the keeper and, uh, keeper came out with a uh, knee up right through the skull and, uh, kind of was head hunting for me a little bit. I think took a cheap shot and, uh, yeah, knocked me out and I was, uh, out for 10 months. Then, um, in 2006, you had quite a comeback. Yeah. 2006, you know, during that time in 2005, it was, uh, it was a very frustrating year just because concussions, no one really knew, you know, how to deal with them or what to do. So. I actually, and, it's, and it's still, I mean, yeah. I, I just even at the global level, like you yeah. barely hear about it. I, yeah, I it's feel a, like it's an epidemic for sure. Yeah, I feel like here I've I've heard it a few times, but other than that, it's never highlighted. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, man, because it's you're forced to become your own doctor. You're forced to be honest with yourself about some real issues, and uh, there are things that you know if you really sit down and you know, admit to yourself that you can't do physical activity. It's, it's a pretty heavy dose, you know, to swallow. So it's a, it's a damning injury, man, because it, it not only destroys you physically, but also mentally as well. And, uh, yeah, it was tough because that, that year people didn't know if I was going to be back or not come back, never play again. I didn't know either. So I had gotten some really faulty medical advice at first where, you know, I had a neurologist just tell me to take pills and that I'd be fine. And once I started getting a vertigo and dizziness while driving and almost, you know, got into a, a life-threatening car accident because of it, uh, I pulled over on the side of the road one day and I just said, wow, something's wrong over here. So um, uh finally got a second opinion and I saw a doctor who shut me down and just told me, listen, right now with the symptoms that you have, if you were to play and get hit in the head, you could potentially die. So I said, okay, um, I guess uh, I need to take a step back away from the game. And uh, that was not easy for me to do, especially with the crazy competitive side that I had. Uh, Peter Novak actually saved me in many ways uh, because they told me all I could do is walk. Don't You can't run, you can't do anything. So I said, okay, if all I could do is walk, I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk my ass off. So... I told our trainer, give me every piece of equipment you have. I had like 20 layers uh, of clothes on, middle of July, and I just walked around the field like 50 times. And uh, all the guys on the team were laughing like, this guy's crazy. And uh, finally, Peter saw me and he's like, I'm just sweating, you know, my ass off. He's like, what the hell is wrong with you, man? Why are you, it's, you know, 100 degrees outside and you're wearing all this, you're going to die. Like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, look, man, I can't play. I don't want to lose my fitness. They told me I could walk. I'm going to walk. But just walking isn't enough. So I want to make it, you know, I want to get the most out of it that I can get. So I'm going to walk and, and sweat as much as I can so I don't lose, you know, my fitness. And he's like, listen, man, you're you're going crazy. Like, you got to go home. So uh, he actually he's like, I want you to get away from the team, get away from soccer for a little bit. 
It allowed me to go home to New Jersey and just kind of chill and relax, get away from the game. And it really helped me a lot to kind of get everything in perspective and uh, just to pray as much as I can that I'd feel better. And luckily, uh, 10 months later, I felt better that uh, I was clear to, to play. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. You ended up staying for 2006, then you were traded to uh, Toronto FC, was that? I played, I played on four teams in 12 months. Talk me through that just briefly and, and what goes through kind of your head as a player. Again, because the system in the, I guess, in the MLS is pretty particular in, the, in, in that sense that you're not really in charge of your, of your own destiny, right? Yeah, well, it was interesting. Uh, I came back 2006. I think I was a finalist for like comeback player of the year and I made the all-star team and kind of back in the national team picture a little bit. And we had a good season. You know, we lost in the playoffs to a, a tough New England team, but you know, I, I dealt with a couple other nagging injuries and things like that, but I ultimately had a, had a very good year. When the season was over, I'll never forget my agent said, uh, Hey, Bruce Serena became the coach in New York and he's uh, interested in bringing you to, to New York. You know, would you would you be interested? Do you still want to play in New York someday? And I'm like, no. You know, I'm I'm happy in I'm happy in DC. You know, we had a good year, and you know, I'm I'm very content with DC. And I said, uh, but you know what? If you want, you know, ask. I, I wonder. I wonder how DC feels about me. I'm, I'm not sure if they want to keep me. And uh, because I I just got kind of got like a weird vibe, um, and so. Uh, and I had just changed agents and my agent was, uh, becoming prominent for sending players to Europe. So I had one year left on my contract. So I guess most people in MLS thought I changed agents because I was going to go to Europe and I was kind of setting up that move. So next thing I know, when my agent calls to find out if there was interest in, in, uh, sending me to New York, he calls me back and he goes, you're not going to believe this, man. You've, they've already agreed to trade you to uh toronto and i'm like what how, what do you mean they've already agreed to me how how is that even possible toronto was a new expansion team they 
you know, just picked a coach. They had zero players at that point. And I'm like, listen, if they're going to trade me, tell them to trade me to New York. Like, you know, how can they trade me to Toronto? And so, and I was livid because I was very close with Peter Novak. And I'm like, how could they have traded me and not one person from the organization has called me? And so I was very, very disappointed. Um, left Peter a couple of nasty, uh, messages, voicemails. Um, just, uh, disappointed that he, he didn't speak to me about anything. So he, he avoided it and he avoided it. And so the trade goes through. And actually before the trade becomes official, Toronto calls me and they go, listen, uh, you know, we're, we're looking to tri- get you here and all that stuff. And I'm like, look, with all due respect, I don't want to go. You know, uh, I'm happy in D.C. And if anything, I, w- I would rather go home and, and play in New York and Jersey. And they're like, oh, well, you know, we want guys that want to be here. So it's kind of it's kind of delaying the process a little bit. All of a sudden, in the meantime, news release comes out. Peter Novak resigns as head coach of D.C. United and becomes an assistant with the U.S. men's national team. So then he calls me and he's like, listen, don't ever leave me a voicemail like that again. You know, you're my guy and all this stuff. And he's like, you know, it's just been a decision that was made uh, by the front office. So um, I felt pretty helpless where I was like, what can I do? It seemed like it was more of a business decision where they got a bunch of money for it. Um, and they probably felt like I was going to leave, you know, the next year anyway to go somewhere else. So they got, you know, value for me while, while they could. And that's where I learned the the business of soccer. and. uh it was tough, man. It was really tough because DC had become my family. You know, I gave them everything I had. I went through a traumatic experience and overcame it. And everyone there was, you know, from the front office down was, was family to me. And to just be sent away without any say, without doing anything wrong was, uh, was tough. Finally, Toronto agreed to bring me in. Um, and to be with an expansion team, uh, that was just starting was, uh, was quite an experience. Um, and I ended up. Loving Toronto, the city, the fans, everything was fantastic. But the team was a, a, a huge project, especially coming from a team like DC United, where, you know, we were in 2004 and 2006, we were by far the best team in the league. Um, to now go to a team that was considered the worst team in the league was, uh, was tough for me and, uh, did my best, gave it everything I had. And then, uh, halfway through the year, I think everyone on our roster that started on our roster got traded in Toronto. It was crazy. How I think they had like 50 players that year because they, they made so many trades. And so halfway through the year, I got traded to Salt Lake. Played the rest of the season in Salt Lake. Uh, proud of, you know, everything we accomplished there. But then my contract ended, um, at that year. I went to Belgium. Uh, I was on trial at Standard Liège, which is, uh, was a Champions League team back then. Felt really good there. Played well. They offered me a contract and were going to loan me uh, for six months and then try to bring me in. So basically my agent called MLS and said, you know, I was going to go to Europe. And they said, you know, what would we have to do uh, to keep you in MLS? And I'd say, uh, uh, you know, the only way I'll stay is if I'm playing in New York or in L.A. So uh, they found out that Salt Lake, you know, would be willing to trade my rights uh, to Chivas USA, which was in L.A., and so uh there it was from one January to the next four four MLS teams in twelve months. <laughs> and how was it at Chivas? Chivas, I was there for two years. And uh 
It was good. You know, in terms of our team, we had a fantastic team. Very good team. Made the playoffs both years. Who, who was there at the time? Sasha Klustian, Ante Razov, Jesse Marsh, Zach Thorne, um, Johnny Bornstein, Claudio Suarez uh, was our captain, Paolo Nagamura. Uh, we had we had a, a very strong team. Uh, good young players, some, some veteran guys, uh, you know, our team had a chip on its shoulder as well, you know, kind of being like the weird, you know, Chivas USA team, which no one really knew what the identity was or anything like that. But, um, we just wanted to play good soccer and not worry about, you know, the image and all that stuff. Um, so the soccer was, was good. Definitely learned a lot about myself, you know, in that time period as well because of different factors. It started feeling like more of a, a job uh, because of different things. Um, and so ultimately, it culminated with my trade to the Galaxy. How was that experience? LA was phenomenal. The Galaxy was, was a rebirth. I started having fun playing again. And it reminded me of my days with DC. And it was a very brief time. I think I only got to play three games before getting my last concussion. Um, but in that month that I was playing, you know, Beckham had just arrived back from from Italy and we just, we had a, a phenomenal team, man. I remember, uh, you know, myself and Edson Buttle up top. Mike McGee was in the mix too. And Landon had kind of shifted to uh, an outside midfielder. David Beckham was, was in the middle. We had Eddie Lewis on the left, who was a phenomenal uh, server of the ball. Um, and in the back, you know, so much experience with Greg Berhalter. Omar Gonzalez was a young guy. AJ De La Garza was a young guy. Um, Donovan Ricketts in goal. We, we just had all the pieces and it felt right. And we were on a roll. We won every game that I played uh, with them. Um, I scored two goals in those three games and just felt alive again. And uh, we got to beat Chivas uh, in one of those games that we played. Uh, so that 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 felt uh, redemption as well. And then and then we played against New York, which uh, I made a habit out of always trying to show my best when I was here because uh, my parents would be here and all that stuff. All my uh, childhood friends. And that was the last MLS game I played. I, I scored a, one, probably my best goal of my career against New York. It felt great. We had a friendly match against AC Milan a week later. And a random fluke play of, you know, I'd already sustained three pretty bad concussions in my career up to that point. And, uh, and that, on that day, um, just a, a cross in by Eddie Lewis. And uh, Tiago Silva was actually the, the player marking me. Uh, he was playing for Milan at the time. I beat him to the spot, cross went over my head. So on the backside, he just tried to uh, clear the ball and uh, just ended up clearing it right into my face, uh, broke my nose, and uh, just gave me another concussion. And I uh, I never recovered. Wow. Quite incredible how, how these things happen to, to certain people. How, <laughs> how you, I mean, what's the... What what are the odds right. for for getting that so many times? I mean, yeah, I think, you know, people always ask, is it you know the style of your how you play and all that? And I'm sure that has something to do with it. You know, I believed in you know giving it everything I had when I was out there. I never held back, even if the odds were not in my favor. Um, but when I look back at the concussions that I had, I, I wouldn't have changed anything in terms of you know, when Eddie Lewis is going to cross the ball, I'm going to attack the spot, man. I'm going to go there. It's not like I could do anything differently. So some of it is, you know, bad luck for sure. And some of it is, is, uh, you know, being in those, in those spots that contact occurs, but that's just how I played. So if you take that away from my game, I probably wouldn't have scored half the goals that I scored. Then you end up, well, forced into retirement. And, right. uh, 
How did you then pivot into coaching? Was that like a natural thing for you that no. here's what I'm going to do or what was going through your head in terms of what's next? Not at all. Um, I actually did not want to be part of coaching. Uh, it was tough for me to be even be on a soccer field uh, to watch you know, other people doing what I love, knowing I should be out there and knowing I, I can't do it anymore. So it was a dark period for about a year and a half, um, where I couldn't, uh, I couldn't even do any physical activity or anything. So couldn't really even get out of the house. So here I am living in Hermosa Beach, steps away from the ocean, and, uh, I have to just stay in my room every day. So started going crazy a little bit and said, I, I need to get out of here. And oddly enough, I said, I'm going to go back to school, finish my degree, um, and just stay away from soccer. So I found my way back to Charlottesville, Virginia as an undergrad student. Uh, where the last time I was there, I was, you know, uh, not taking academics too seriously. And, and, uh, it always stuck with me throughout my professional career. You know, my mom, my mom said, Hey, listen, I never saw your grades from that last semester. What were your grades like? And I said, Mom, don't worry about my grades. They weren't good, but I promise you I will, I will graduate. And so, She's, you know, my parents always place an emphasis on, on education. So I said, look, I, that's a promise that I'll keep. So when I was going through all that stuff, I'm like, you know what? I got to get back to, back to the basics here a little bit, get my mind off soccer and, uh, kind of pursue the other thing that I'm passionate about, which is education. And, um, went back to school and, uh, and just chipped away at getting my degree. I had to change my major, unfortunately, from, uh, econ to actually anthropology which was quite interesting. Definitely not something that uh, is necessarily going to help me in the, uh, in the long term, but it was the best avenue for me to, to get my degree uh, at that point. So, and with that said, it, it actually has helped me in a coaching essence because, you know, to know, to study culture and to know how to deal with people and know how to uh, know, to understand where people are coming from is, is definitely uh, a great thing to have, whether it's in business or soccer or whatever it is. And so, um, it helped me appreciate, you know, our roots and, and where we all come from and, and, uh, you know, what, what drives us all. So, um, yeah, I graduated with, uh, with a degree in anthropology in 2011. And, uh, while I was there, I was given the opportunity to then be a voluntary assistant with the UVA men's soccer team while I was taking my classes. And, uh, that's where, I finally was able to be around the game again. Um, and it was great to be on the college level because these were kids who were just wanting to be professionals and kids who had watched me play and kind of looked up to me. So I said, you know what? I've learned a lot in this game. I've, I've accomplished a lot. I've seen a lot. I've had a, I've had a lot passed down to me from, from my dad and other great, great soccer players. The least I could do now is, is help these kids out, help them avoid some of the mistakes that I made helped them uh, be more prepared for things than I was or whatever the case may be. And I felt a lot of, you know, a lot of, of gratitude, you know, and I was like, man, this is, this is my responsibility. It's not just something that I enjoy. This is a responsibility of mine to pass down all these things. And uh, then I said, okay, maybe, maybe coaching is an option, but, uh, Peter Novak at that point was with the Philadelphia Union and he had been asking me for a while to be an assistant coach with him. And I told him I did not want to be a coach. I, I, I wanted to do something different to influence kids, to help, you know, pass down everything that I learned. Um, just I wasn't ready to be part of back in the professional game yet. So 
one day called me and he said, listen, I got the perfect job for you. I want you to be our youth technical director for the academy that we're starting with the Philadelphia Union. So uh, he brought me in and uh, and it was it was fantastic. I learned a lot and, and uh, held that position for a little over a year. Uh, you just mentioned that, you know, teaching kids from, from some of the mistakes that you made. But from the sound of it, you did do almost everything right in terms of being a <laughs> professional and, and the way you went about things. What were some of the the mistakes in this case that you, that you would look back on? Yeah, you know, there's a lot that I did wrong. And I didn't realize they were necessarily wrong at the time. Some of it's just human nature, you know, just having that patience. And some of it you can't prevent because I, I'm sure I had my parents in my ear helping me or other people in my ear giving me advice. But some things you, you just can't control. And um, especially, you know, on the emotional side. But it's tough to say because, uh, you know, I think all those things that maybe affected me in a negative way also helped me in, in a positive way as well. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, but, you know, looking back just in terms of with my injuries, for instance, you know, I and and I ignored everyone's advice. I came back from injuries so quickly. I just couldn't stay away. So I played through things that I had no business playing through. And, you know, you always realize after the fact, you know, how your body's your investment. If, you, if your body's not right, then you can, you're no use to anyone. And uh, I definitely wore my body out. I, I gave it everything I had to a fault where I, I didn't like staying away from it. So if they said it, and, and it's my competitive side, if you tell me I'm going to be out for four weeks, I'm going to be back in two and a half. If you tell me this is how long something takes, I'm going to be back sooner than that. It was, it was a game. You know, I want to be the quickest to recover from this or from that. And in the process, you end up, you know, pushing yourself too much and playing uh, not at 100% or not even at 80% at times. And, you know, for me and my world, it was like, okay, but, you know, my my team will appreciate that I'm doing this, you know, for for the team. But then you see the business side of it and the lack of loyalty or you know, respect for the, the work that you do in some cases, you know, it's more about a business than it is about, you know, what you've done sometimes. Um, and that really was eye opening to me when I look back on it. I was like, man, you know, I, I wish I would have taken my time and, and, uh, you know, taken care of my body a, a bit better to, to be at, at the top of my game at all times as opposed to, uh, you know, not being, not being uh, at my best. After Philly, that was the step over to uh the new york cosmos and uh in 2013 yeah was I actually, that an uh, obvious well, choice no, because of the history or no no i actually got fired from philly because uh peter novak brought me in um and he got fired from his job and so um they decided to get rid of the guys that he brought in you know to it's just the way out pro sports work where um you know a new coach wants to bring in his own guys and so uh that again was very discouraging for me where I was like, do I really want to be part of a a business where you could be let go for not doing anything wrong? You know, I felt very proud of the work that I did with Philly, with the Academy, had a great thing going and uh, the rug got, got pulled from under me. So back to the drawing board, trying to figure things out. I, I kind of dipped and dabbled in different things. I, I was writing for Sports Illustrated a bit. I did some TV commentary and things like that. Then uh, Giovanni Savarisi called me and Another guy that a uh, legend that I looked up to when I was a kid and met with him. He told me about the whole Cosmos project 
And, uh, yeah, all, all the pieces seem to fit where it was a no brainer in terms of what the club has meant to me and my family and, and how it'd be a perfect opportunity for me to get back in. But, uh, it was a very hard decision. I just, I had such a bad taste in my mouth from the way things had ended that I just wasn't sure if I wanted to put myself through that again. But it was, uh, it was a decision that I made collectively with, with my family. And, uh, it was a, it was a great decision looking back on it because first of all, you know, to work with someone like Gio, who I, I trust and who's, you know, a class act and someone that I trust, which is very important, but also because, you know, it's, it's a project and there's a lot of challenges and a lot of uncertainties about it. And so, uh, it kept me very busy, uh, to be creative and, and, uh, you know, try to do the best that I can and learn more about myself as a coach at the professional level. Have you grown much more sort of cynical towards the game, seeing and going through everything you've gone through? And uh, I wouldn't say cynical. I just, uh, I'll say I'm a lot more educated about it. Um, and like I said, when you're young and you're playing, it's it's a very me-centric sport and you don't see the big picture at all times. And I was, you know, looking back, I could say I was naive. I was naive for thinking that, you know, you know, rather than 2004 when I'm, you know, scoring all those goals, rather than demanding a, a new contract or something like that, I said, oh, it'll pay off in the end, you know, even though I had everyone in my ear of, oh, you should be getting paid more. You should be doing this. You know, for me, I didn't do it for, for money. I, I just felt like, you know, if you do the right things and if you act the right way, you'll be rewarded for it. And that wasn't always the case. So um, I just learned the, the business side of it. And I'm much more educated now in terms of how that works. And I don't, you know, have any grudges against anyone or anything. I just, it's just how the world operates. And, and I still do feel um, that, you know, if you do things the right way and, and you treat people the right way, then you know, eventually it'll, it'll pay off in the end. So uh, I'm definitely not cynical about it, but I definitely think I was naive uh, at the time. What are some of the things that you bring to coaching that are unique for you and, you know, based on your experience? And, and what are the things that you do better than anybody else? <laughs> Winning. That's, that's what drives me, man. Um, whether it's a bet that I can make with you right now uh, here at the table or um, a small sided game or a 11 v 11 game, you know, I'm all about winning and trying to figure out how to win. And that even if, even if I lose, I'll find a way how it's really a win because you learn from it and, and uh, it helps you in the long run. But uh, that's, that's kind of what drives me. And um, you know, the, the obvious uh, answer is, you know, obviously I'm, I'm young in terms of a coach and some of the guys I'm coaching now, I'm younger than, or I played with. So I have the advantage of understanding a player's mentality and uh, what makes them tick and being able to re relate with players on a more personal level, which uh, I really enjoy and I use to my benefit. But at the end of the day, you know, if you aren't doing your job the right way, players will see right through you. If you're not confident in what you're doing, players will see right through you. So I just try to work hard, be confident in the work that I that I put into it, the preparation that I put into it, which is a lot. And uh hopefully that that will uh result in me being at my maximum potential with everything that I do. You know, I still have a, a lot of room to grow as well and I'm eager to learn more. Um and I still think that it could branch out to many different parts of the game, not necessarily just a, as a coach. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. So 
I'm interested in, in every part of that aspect, the, the whole front office technical side of, of soccer. And so, you know, when I look down the road in terms of aspirations, I think I could use all these different pieces uh, to my benefit. You work quite a bit with, uh, with young players and it's a new generation, obviously. With everything that, that comes with both personality-wise, but also there is much more attention today and even at an early age, you've gone through it all. What what should this new generation of the young kids or, or players that you coach what what should they know? <laughs> they should know that uh, today in the United States of America, there is more opportunities than ever in the history of this country to be a professional soccer player. Uh, the access that that we have now for our young players, uh, the training, the clubs, the you know games on TV. This is a first, you know, for, for, uh, soccer in this country, for soccer players in this country. So th- they need to understand, um, all the work that, that has gone behind it to get to this point today and they need to take advantage of it. You know, the one issue that I see with today's generation is, is that they're a bit spoiled. And when I say spoiled, yeah, sometimes it relates to their background or maybe their parents or whatever it is. But in some ways, you see a lot of kids these days that they don't have to struggle. And my father always told me, soccer is a poor man's sport. You know, you can't be a rich kid or have a rich kid mentality and excel because, you know, you always have to have that hunger inside of you. Doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is, your mentality on the field, you have to, you have to have that hunger. You got to be a poor man on the field that's hungry to eat. And too many kids I feel are. It's like the YouTube generation where they, you know, watch these highlights on YouTube and they see Cristiano doing these tricks and, you know, they work with the ball. They're, they're a lot more technical now, but now when they face adversity, it's kind of like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. When I was practicing this move in my basement, there was no one pulling my shirt. Like, that's a foul. Referee, that's a foul. He's not letting me do my, you know, and they're, they're mentally weak. Or if a player is not playing, they just change teams. There's, you know, a hundred other teams I could go play for. There's not that one team and that's, you got to grind and find a way to make that team. And that, that is hurting their, their mental buildup. And you see it, you know, at all levels right now of, of kids that are turning pro or whatever it is and very, very talented players who, you know, are amazing talents. But when they don't have that mental capacity to deal with adversity, it doesn't matter how talented you are. And that to me is a, a big thing that needs to change, you know, culture wise. And there's some kids that have it, that have that buildup, whether it's ingrained in them from their parents or if they're born with it and they just have that drive, those kids, those kids make it. But I see a lot of very talented kids who are not making it because of, uh, those, those mental deficiencies. So, um, that's something that, that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll need to work on, but that's, that's kind of the next progression of, uh, of, of the soccer for the next generation. Clad in blue, the homestanding Red Bulls in white. The distribution through Donovan, through Beckham to open up other players. They have all the variables, options, seeing them. A very quick tempo is going to be important. It's Gendarian! His third game with the Galaxy and his second goal. He's been a Red Bull killer in the past. He's done it again. 1-0 LA. 
early days. We're getting towards the end here. I, I know we could uh, we could probably go on for for a couple more hours. <laughs> you, you, you got a lot to share, but you know I'm gonna let you go in just a few. And and I have just a set of uh, rapid fire questions. Sure. No uh, problem. I'll just shoot a few uh, sort of last ones here. No problem. Uh, what's the biggest moment in your career? Scoring against Real Madrid. Biggest moment in your coaching career? Winning the national championship with Cosmos B. Best player you've played with? David Beckham and uh, Christian Gomez as well. Best player you've played against? Andrea Pirlo. Favorite team? Arsenal. And as a side note, you are actually wearing an Arsenal hoodie today. I am. Most days I am. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dream team to coach? Arsenal. Real realistically, I'll say this: the Ar- Armenian national team. That's an interesting one. Yes. Do you follow them? I do, I do. Uh, you know, a good friend of mine is Yuram Ovsisian, who uh, played with uh, Real Salt Lake, which I I kind of helped bring him uh, to that team, and he's had a, a great you know career um, in MLS, and then moving on to Europe uh, in Russia now. But uh, it's been fun to see the growth of Armenia, and I always kind of had a a little bit of regret, you know, that I never got to represent Armenia when I was playing. Uh, obviously, I called into the U.S. at a young age, but looking back, I always thought, man, you know, it would have been so much pride to uh, to represent that on the world stage. So, um, as as a coaching career, that would definitely be something that that I would definitely be interested in. A coach you look up to and uh, follow: Bruce Arena and Peter Novak, and of course, my father. Do you watch yourself on on YouTube? Uh, my girlfriend would say yes. I, I would say <laughs> no. Um, but um, you got to explain that. <laughs> well, she never she never saw me play, so sometimes I have to be like, "Yeah, this is uh, the life that I had," you know, before uh, I became a, an old man coaching. Um, so sometimes it's fun, you know. I, I meet a lot of people who have no idea that I that I played before, and so it's fun uh, for them to see highlights or videos or whatever it is and it's fun for me too it's some nostalgia to see like man i was uh you know i i made a lot of references to how i had a crazy mentality and mindset and uh it's much different now you know it's a different mentality as a coach i'm obviously older and more mature and all that stuff so it kind of is funny to watch uh the younger version of me and and relive you know the uh the things that I was thinking or going through in those moments, it's, it's pretty fun. But I, and I look back on it with a lot of pride. I don't have any uh, regrets over my career or anything like that. I, I know I gave it everything that I had and, and uh, left it always out there for, for the fans and for the teams that I was representing. You get to take three people in the soccer world for dinner and uh, past or present and assume that language is not a barrier. Who are those three and where would you take them? Now that's a tough one. I would say I'll take Pele. I'll take Maradona. And I'll take my dad. Um, and there's a funny link there because my dad played with Pele and my dad played against Maradona. And, it, you know, just to, I, I'm, I'm very much old school in, in, in the game. You know, I've, uh, I'm a historian of the game. I grew up watching tapes. I memorized, you know, the Ling score every World Cup since, you know, the inception. And 
seeing all the great players that paved the way for my dad's generation and obviously my dad's generation paved the way for my generation and vice versa. So those guys are are obviously iconic figures and, and huge rivals. So to be able to sit with the two of them and, and be able to talk would be would be something too. And to have my dad there as well to kind of be an intermediary would be would be pretty cool as well. So um I I feel like that would be a pretty pretty amazing and at least two of them would probably I don't know your dad that well but at least the other two would probably put on a pretty good party <laughs> absolutely absolutely and, and where would you take them by the way I would take them to an Armenian restaurant for sure there's there's no one that's had a bad time uh, eating some kebab and uh, drinking some red wine so we'll, uh, we'll we'll give them a nice Armenian do we have a good one in New York we do there's a couple of good uh, Persian Armenian restaurants I was actually just at dinner Two days ago with uh, Yuri Jarkaev, who uh, is, you know, the best Armenian player maybe of all time, who obviously played for France and won a World Cup and is a legend in any, any, in every way, um, shape and form. So we went to a nice, nice uh, Persian Armenian meal. Which day. one and where is it? Uh, Ravar is what it's called. It's in uh, Midtown. How can people get hold of you or find out more? I seem to be pretty active on social media these days. Uh, I get made fun of for it, but it's probably the best way for anyone to really reach me. I'm, I'm very. What's uh, your, uh, handle? My handle is, uh, at Aleko11. Uh, 11 was my jersey number. So I, I started when I was playing. So I just kept the handle. But, uh, you know, I, I love the interaction with fans. You know, I always tell everyone I come across, I, I started this whole thing as a fan. You know, I was a fan of soccer since the day I was born, watching and mimicking. And, you know, I'd be the kid at Giant Stadium trying to get autographs from from players. So I never lost that side of me. Whether even when I was a player, I would spend the extra 20 minutes, hour, whatever it was, to sign every autograph because I know how much it means. Um, and I think that's also important for to kind of pay it forward for the, for the growth of the game. So uh, I'll never lose being, being a, a fan of the game and I'll always live inside me. So social media is another way to kind of branch out and, you know, engage with fans, even even if sometimes on Twitter it's uh, a bit hectic and everyone thinks they know everything about everyone. So uh, sometimes you get a little bit hairy, but uh, overall I enjoy the, the banter and going back and forth and, and showing a bit of my own personality as well because, you know, if, if I were to judge myself from what I saw on TV, it'd be a very different person than who I am in, in real life. I know we've covered quite a bit, but is there anything you would like to recommend? No, no. Listen, um, I think these conversations are important because uh, nothing like this has really been done. Um, soccer is relatively new. You know, there was the old generation with the old Cosmos uh, that kind of gave a rebirth to, to soccer. And then there was no professional league for a long time. And now all of us that, that were kind of part of the, the earlier years of, of the league are, are in some ways considered pioneers. So this is kind of like the, the NFL films show where like you talk to NFL guys who talked about how they played for a couple hundred bucks and now the guys are making millions. So with the way soccer is growing in this country, I think 10 years, 20 years from now, you know, it'll be a huge, huge market, um, on the world stage. And I think it'll grow into one of the best leagues in the world. We're on that path. And, you know, it's guys that I played with and, and my generation um, and even before me and this next one coming up after that are all going to shape 
you know, how, how well we do as a nation. So these conversations are important just to, you know, tell people what it's like and give them the realities and the behind the scenes version. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Uh, I, I really appreciate that note. Uh, that's very much what the purpose of this, of these types of conversations are. So thank you. Last question. Who do you think I should interview on this podcast next? Jeff Mateo is who I think you should interview because he uh, he's the most influential soccer person in New York City. So I'm going to say Jeff Mateo is who you should interview. Maybe you can put in a good word. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Thank you so much. It's it's been a it's been a true pleasure. Uh, I I did a little bit of research, obviously, before and in, in looking at who I should be talking to, and I figured that you would be an an interesting character. But uh, this has been much more than that. And, and I think there's a lot of great lessons um, for anybody following in your footsteps or anybody in just in life and in general. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, and thank you so much. And best of luck. Again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes or on the podcast app please write a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to email me at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. It's at coffeesfootball. Check out the coffeeandfootball.com website. There you'll find any related content and additional info on each guest. This show also lives on SoundCloud and Acast. Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week's episode. It'll go up on Monday or Tuesday. And after that, it'll be one new episode per week.